Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the In Lockdown World podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is writer Peter Cox. Hi Peter, how are you? Hi, I'm good Kieran, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. We, we were just talking about before we started, um, how much of a difference, you know, having outside space around you and access to outside space can really help with dealing with lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where where we're based in Mid Wales, we we're surrounded by the Cumbria Mountains in a, a pretty rural area, and it's a, it, it's a. <clears throat> I, I think we've got a, a, a huge advantage over people who are stuck in mm. flats or stuck in properties with no garden and that kind of thing. Uh, in the number one, we can look out the window and the view actually gives us a horizon, which is some distance away, but also uh, we can step outside into the garden or step up the lane, and um, etc. And, and also the the number of people here means you're not as uh, yeah. tied down into a community where there is much more likelihood of transmission. You're in an area where you're yeah. very cautious. It's not as intense as it would be in a more metropolitan area. How close are you to the nearest town then? Uh, about, excuse me, about five miles from the town. Oh, okay. Um, which is the market town where I've been uh, around this community for over 30 years now. So it's a, a very beautiful place to live, lovely, fantastic community that does huge amounts of volunteering. Um, it's a bit like living on an island sometimes right. when you live in a rural place. You you know you have to become quite reliant on yourself and your neighbours at times, uh, especially in winter with snow and etc. But in a situation like this, people really pull together and look out for each other. Mm, it's nice to have that community because so many people don't. Um, I wanted to ask you first. I want to go back. I, I asked this question first to every guest that I have on, on the podcast, but how did you first get interested in theatre and the arts? Um, I grew up in a, in a little terrace street in um, a very heavy chemical industrial town on Merseyside, a town called Witness. And the, the, the main industry around us was... Um, ICI, um, copper refineries, that kind yes. of place, and it was it was a very toxic environment to grow up in. Uh, environmentally, it was extremely toxic. Um, but my my parents were um, 
had a had a real positive attitude towards music. So my my dad was church organist uh, and would play the piano in the social club and that kind of thing. Um, and my mum was a very good singer. So they both had the, that side of life going for them. Yeah. And they would he would put things together occasionally a little bit before the children were born. Me and my sister he would put things like the Mikado together. So oh. he would. But he would take community members who, who just happened to be able to sing or want to act, etc. Um, so there's a little bit on that side, which it comes from. And um, also the, the other side, from my grandmother's point of view, at one stage she was a cleaner in a the theatre, which was about the closest mm. I've ever had to anybody in the family <laughs> working in theatre. And, and that was locally known as the blood tub which is quite an extraordinary, old-fashioned, almost like a musical name for right. a place. Because on Friday nights, it could end up as a bit of a battleground between people who don't want to drink too many. Um, and they came together for a, a social evening, a night out, comedians or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. going back then, music. And sometimes it would end up in fisticuffs. So it was known as the blood tub. <laughs> And um, when did you start to see it as something that you wanted to do as a career? Mm, that's really, really straightforward for me. It's very weird. I, um, <clears throat> I found school extremely difficult. Um, I, my birthday's in August, which means that you, you're going into a year at school where you're with people who are 11 months older than you, yeah. so they were already a lot older and more advanced than you. Plus, I'd missed the term as um, due to, uh, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the illness. Um, a kind of one of those childhood illnesses which leaves you bedbound for nine yeah. weeks. So I'd missed a complete term, so I was way behind academically. Um, and it, it it sort of put me in a bad place at school. I, I, if, if the teachers got three or four lines out of me on paper, um, they would kind of, you know, cheer to the rafters because they were so pleased to get something out of me. And I, I was very poor academically. So I left school at 16 and I went to what's called a technical college locally. In those days, it was like a, mm. the equivalent of your local um, uh, further education, not higher education, but further ed. And suddenly there we were treated like grown-ups. We weren't treated like school kids anymore. And we had this very radical woman um, uh, English lecturer who introduced us to this piece of drama uh, as a script for us to study, which at the time we just didn't have a clue what it was. But as we explored it with her, we began to find it quite engaging and quite yeah. interesting. And she taught it really well. And that play happened to be Waiting for Godot. Oh, which right. hadn't long kind of been um, uh, performed in London and Paris, etc. So that kind of gave me the first taste of um, working with a script. Also, around about a year before that, just before I left school, I was taken to um, a school production, a school trip, to a production of Peter Brook's um, theatre production, RSC theatre production of um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which in the 70s was an absolute classic piece of contemporary modern interpretation of Shakespeare. And it, it, I didn't know why at the time, but it completely blew my socks off that I'd never been to see a play before. 
and right. I wasn't over enamoured with going to see Shakespeare because we were studying, studying Shakespeare, mm. and I wasn't very good at studying. But the combination of those two things made me kind of open my eyes a bit to this thing called drama. So, <coughs> in, in my teenage years, <coughs> then I was, um, so in my teenage years, I was playing quite a lot of instruments so I was teaching myself guitar and banjo and dulcimer yeah. and auto harp and tin whistle and things and I was writing poetry and I would also go in to help run uh, folk clubs uh, acoustic oh, clubs cool. so I was kind of getting on stage and storytelling and um, people like Billy Connolly uh, who, who were around at the same time uh, they went on to do that for the rest of their lives. I, I progressed to becoming a playwright. Um, but basically, I would get up and I would fictionalize these kind of worlds that um, were an introduction to the song or the part of the thing that I was writing at the time, poetry or whatever. Um, and then when it when it came to um, a plane to try and get into uni to scrape in with my minimum grades that I knew yeah. I was going to get, um, I ended up doing physical education uh, as a kind of peak to become a PE teacher, yeah. strangely, um, which I was very good at. I was a rugby player and I was very physically um, capable. But also I, I managed to get in on the drama course and I didn't really know where that was going to lead me. Um, so that, that I went down to London to St Mary's uh, College uh, yeah. in Twickenham, uh, which was... Uh, a fantastic campus university yeah um, so you get you you spend all your time there you know you haven't got any money to go off and do anything else really but it, what it meant was in this place that i went to i went in with a brilliant year of other students all of whom we thought we were going to end up teaching drama and quite a few of us have gone on into the business but it, the, the most important thing was that it had an absolute state-of-the-art cutting-edge studio theater right which meant that we were expected to just get involved and make theatre as much as possible as part of our studies. So you were pushed from the off to start making your own work in little companies and things like that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think to begin with, you, when you think that this is something I can do, this is something I enjoy and that I like, um, and I like being in this team environment with other creative people, when you when you have a a kind of perspective on that to begin with, you're you're not really understanding it the bigger picture. You're you're you, all you're doing is the nuts and bolts bit. Mm. You're being a lighting designer because there's no lighting designer on the show. You're learning how to focus lights. You're learning how to put a yeah. tower together to climb up and focus. You're learning how to uh, stage things in different ways in arena seating or in the round or whatever. You're learning how to direct design, costume design, mm. do all the logistics, all the problem solving, which comes with creating theatre. Um, and when I left there, I found that I'd actually been involved in over 80 productions. Wow. And I was there, and that was an, an amazing kind of apprenticeship almost before you've even joined the profession. And, and that give you an insight into all aspects of theatre, not just, you know, like you saying, you mucked in with everything, almost yeah. not realising that you were doing it at that time, but afterwards having those skills yeah, to take forward. Value. I mean, I could 
I could say to anybody who's thinking of, of embarking on a career in, in any form of, of theatre work, the more you can do to get your hands dirty with mm. every aspect of theatre making, <clears throat> the better. And, and especially if you're going to go on to write in it, because um, writing isn't an intellectual exercise when you put a piece of theatre together. Uh, it's not a literary exercise. It's not a poetic exercise. It's a craft which involves understanding and knowledge of the theatre mm. and how it works. And, it, and it, at times that's very, very crude. You know, it's, it's down to entrances and exits. Um, things like that. You can, yeah. you can absolutely turn a play um, on how you craft an entrance or an exit or how you reveal something to an audience. Um, and I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing people over, over my career who've all really been very, very hands-on, you know. Uh, um, mm. As we talk a little bit further down the line about later in my career, you, you'll kind of pick up on a couple of those. Some of them are quite surprising as well. So. Right. Um, but, sorry, just going back to my notes. Um, so you, you kind of start, did you start off at the Royal Court? Yeah, I, interestingly, I um, <laughs> in my last year at college, I, yeah. I was uh, I was doing a lot of um, the technical work, production side, but I was beginning to think this might be a, a, a world I could go into. And I thought maybe I could become a director. Right. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, I'm really not sure because I, I'm not really interested in directing the classics. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be thinking I want to direct the Greeks or uh, Shakespeare or something. Um, and I, I was kind of angling towards the possibility of becoming a director, but I didn't really understand it. And this company came in to do a... Um, a production in, in the studio in the studio when I say studio it's a big studio it wasn't like a little tiny right. pub, room above a pub um, this company came in and their production manager company manager lighting designer had had his wallet stolen somewhere and he just said I've got a real problem you know I, I need to go and sort this out with the police and uh, can you can you look after the day for me uh, can you rig the lights? Can you put the set up? Here's the spec, you know. And I, I just said, yeah, no problem. And mm -hmm. I did it all. And the company uh, administrator, boss person, came in about five o'clock, and she went, you know, where, where is he? And I said, well, he's not been here for five hours. You know, he's gone to the police. And, and she said, well, who's done all this? And I said, well, I've done it. <laughs> and she uh, checked me out a little bit, and then she said, do you want a job? Right. And I said. Well, maybe, yeah, what is it? And she said, well, we've got a tour coming up in Ireland. Um, we need a company manager, lighting designer, tour manager, um, and I'd really like you to do the job because you're better than the guy unemployed already, you know. And I kind of went, oh, okay. And it carried an equity card as well, which I still have all these years later. Um, but what it did was it gave me a catalyst into working with people um, who went on to become, or, or, or soon after, went on to become quite internationally famous. So right. uh, I was working in Dublin within weeks of finishing my college career. I was working in Dublin with Jim Sheridan. Now, if you know Jim Sheridan as a director, he directed mm -hmm. a very famous film called My Left Foot. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you'd expect that I would have yelled at that. So, yeah, and yeah. Jim was just like me, right. you know, we both come from very humble, kind of terrace street backgrounds. We got on well, we had a pint of Guinness together, we, he was directing, his brother was writing, and, right. you know, suddenly I'm on tour in Ireland with 11 actors. <laughs> the days when you could kind of write a play for 11 actors and put them on the road. I see, know. yeah. Um, and then after that, I, I, the trigger then was that I came back and, and there was a technical manager position going at the Royal Court. Um, and yeah. one of my ex-colleague college buddies had been doing it. He was leaving and he proposed me as his replacement. Um, so I knew the reputation of the Royal Court. I'd been to see things there. I knew it was a new writing theatre. And I knew that you, you, if you went there as a techie, they weren't expecting you to just be the perfect techie for the next 10 years. They expected you to be a kind of contributing company member. Okay. So, you know, within weeks of me being there as a, as a techie, which I could do the work of, on that side, no problem. I was script reading, for example. And so because I had this feeling about being a director, uh, I was thinking I'll find some really interesting scripts. Uh, I'll learn a bit about scripts <clears throat> and then I'll, think that being a director is is a good way to go so um, and i couldn't to be all in all honesty i couldn't actually find any scripts that i really wanted to do okay so they the management talked to me and said well how, how do you want to progress your creative side what about working with our youth theater and devising mm. a play uh, and writing what needs to be written so i ended up i wrote my first play for the royal court youth theater and <clears throat> it was um a real baptism of fire where you're suddenly you're doing what you do anyway as a teacher you're kind of running workshops and uh, enjoying working with young people and bringing out their skills and talents but also you're taking responsibility for a show it's not it's not a play by somebody else this is it's created your... by you and the team and working, uh, and working with young people can be very challenging I, um, I, I, I still do it I did it in January and February this year locally you know I, I ne I've never turned my back on it at all and they can be yeah. very honest about what yeah. what they think is good and what they, yeah. they don't what, like what, what that experience did was it you know on our opening night suddenly I realised that I was making the audience laugh but I was also making the Are you frozen, Peter? Are you frozen? Okay, sorry. Yeah, I think I've come back. Have I? Yeah, you're back now. Yeah. So there was a thing that was going on with that at the time, which was me going back to being that teenager who was yeah. a storyteller in the music lives and playing instruments and writing poetry and lyrics and things. Um, and I had to take a lot of responsibility for writing from the devising process. And, and when, on the first night, what happened was I realised that I was making the audience laugh and cry. Uh, I thought, you might have something going on here, you know, there might be a kind of mm. thing that is your thing. Finally, you're discovering it. Um, you're probably 24 by then or something, uh, 25 maybe. Um, and it, it became the kind of thing which kickstarted me into taking that side of things more seriously. Uh, I got asked to be an assistant director by the Royal Court on a couple of shows. Okay. Um, and then a really big step forward for me was that um, 
Edward Bond, the playwright Edward Bond, who was huge in the late 60s and 70s, wrote a very powerful and um, groundbreaking play called Saved, which includes the stoning of a baby as a part of its um, story. Yeah, we did Uh, that in college. Edward was coming to do one of his plays with the Royal Court Youth Theatre, and they asked me, would I assist and direct him? I'd been studying him at college like three or four years previously, um, and I, I just almost bit their hand off and said, absolutely. And they said, okay, we, we're, we're booking him, uh, organizing a flat for him in Earl's Court. Um, it would be really helpful if you moved into the flat with him as well for oh, the duration wow. of the wow. <laughs> so I, became, I became kind of a flatmate to Edward Bond, you know? Um, yeah. And he is an extraordinary craftsman as a playwright. So. Mm. Working very, very closely with him was an exceptional experience. And around about the same time, this is going to sound really bizarre, um, given that I'd, at the age of 16, when I went to Witness Technical College, um, given that I'd had this uh, experience of being introduced to waiting for Godot as a young kind of teenage northern lad, Samuel Beckett was also working at the Royal Court no on, on his production of Happy Days with an actress called Billy Whitelaw, in it, right. who was a fantastic um, actress. Um, and they asked me, would I work uh, uh, kind of in the, at the same time, would I work on helping that production to come into being? Which meant that I would be sitting in rehearsals with Samuel Beckett and watching him direct Billy Whitelaw. And, you know, within the first five minutes, you just think, this is extraordinary experience. You know, I, 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 I studied this guy when I was 16. He's world famous. He Did knows it. what he's doing, but he's also, he's a theatre craftsman. Yeah. You know, he's not a lit- he's, people see him as a kind of literary giant and they see him as a poet and all those things. He's actually gets his sleeves rolled up and mm. he's really in the thick of it, making the entrances and exits work, making the lighting work. You know, getting the atmosphere right, getting the yeah. sound design right, working on every nuance of performance uh, with the actress, etc. So, a couple of those experiences were pretty, pretty big for me, you know. <laughs> and and does that thing of being starstruck, did, did you kind of learn to deal with that when you were working with Beckett, for example? In, in a weird way, no, not really, because you're, you're actually you're being expected to be a young professional in an environment with a more experienced professional. Mm. So nobody's expecting you to be kind of have a magic, you know, uh, suddenly I'm like a wise old head. You know your place and you're, um, you're serving that person in one way or another as an assistant or whatever. So you're doing a lot of the legwork. But also they are very conscious that you are learning from them and you end up... Yeah. As in all good theatre, you end up as equals, and you end up working mm. as a team. Um, and, it, and it cannot happen, you know, theatre doesn't happen without people working collaboratively and as a team. And that's what it should be. There should be no kind of hierarchy in theatre. The, the, the last part of my time at the Royal Court was the most amazing part, which is um, I ended up working with Danny Boyle on a project there. So, okay. So... Film, film maker, director, yeah. director, Olympic opening ceremony <laughs> director Danny. We were both around. We're both about the same age, and um, 
he he was a trainee young director there and I was this new writer on the block kind of thing and it was a time in Northern Ireland when um, things were extremely difficult mm. uh, politically and it was pretty much a combat zone um, there were there'd just been the hunger strikes in 1982 so yeah. there was it was extremely volatile um, also People from the Republican political side of things were banned from speaking on British television. Really? I didn't know that. People like Jerry Adams, who, who was still around, yeah. um, he, whatever he said could still be said, but it had to be voiced by an actor. And it was part of a very kind of old-fashioned colonialist, right-wing British um, control mechanism of, mm. of the, the, the peasants in Ireland, basically, you know. So the, the Royal Court had this um, idea that there's a, a, a book called, um, uh, uh, by Eamon McCann, called, uh, uh, come back to me in a minute, but a book about living in Derry um, as a, um, during the civil rights movement over there which is just in the sort of 70s into 80s and the idea was that we would go and uh, they would they commissioned me as a playwright to go with Danny to workshop with young people uh, in Derry in Northern Ireland in the bog side in Derry which was pretty much like a war zone at the time with young people on both sides yeah the the brief was to begin our um, journey into the Republican community, right? Because that was the one that didn't have a voice, um, and so th those would be the, the the kind of sixteen year olds who were being, you know, notionally or theoretically, they were the ones who were the next generation IRA members. So as far as British yeah. government would be concerned, these sixteen year olds were the next dangerous bombers. So they were very, very marginalized in society, extremely marginalized. And um, Danny and I went over there, and when we, we, we're both six foot tall, we've both got short hair, we both had English accents. Uh, and most of the young people we met, the, their only experience of somebody six foot tall, short hair, English accent was in a uniform, carrying a gun, and yeah. pointing the gun at them, or breaking down their parents' front door to look for weapons and that kind of thing yeah uh, so it was a it wasn't an easy period of research it was a very difficult period of research um it was made a bit easier when i wrote a couple of poems and uh, one of the older members of the community came to me and he said people have been very suspicious of you even though your bona fides have been very good yeah um very suspicious of you because of this expectation of you being undercover sas or something like yeah. that yeah He said, he said, as soon as you wrote those poems, everybody just said, oh, geez, these people are all right. They, they, they could never teach the SAS to write poetry like that. <laughs> <laughs> My yeah. teenage years of writing poetry paid off. Yes. It was suddenly something that um, helped break barriers down. But it was that community themselves who said, don't only talk to us. You know, Make sure you go across the river and, and talk to the Protestant community. That's so, really interesting. And um, I, I wrote a play then called Up to the Sun and Down to the Centre um, on the back of that experience. It was a life-changing experience for me. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I was meeting the parents of a kid who'd been killed by a plastic bullet. 
was shot by mm. the British Army, you know, etc. So very traumatizing. I went to visit prisoners in the H blocks, the the um, long cash, as it was called at the time, the very very brutal and difficult prison mm. uh, where the hunger strikes took place. Um, but it, that that play um, uh, won me the George Devine Award. Uh, the George Devine Award is most promising new playwright in Britain, basically. Right. And that just opened the door for me. After that, you know, it, number one, it was a great experience doing it. It was great working with Danny. Um, a great having a play on at the Royal Court. But it means that it's it's been on top of my CV ever since. It's it's there right from yeah. day one. It's the you know George Devine Award winner. And there are places that I go into now where people will recognize that and go, whoa, wow, George Devine Award winner, because it's a really hard award to to, right. uh, to to win. At the time, it was the furthest thing from my mind, you know. I mean, on that experience, I had petrol bombs thrown at me because people thought I might be an undercover SAS man. But so you're, what you want to do, you've, number one priority is to survive. Your number two priority is to write a good play. Yeah. Number three is to feel that you're not writing propaganda for people. That's but true. you're writing their truth. You're trying to find uh, an honest way of portraying what it is that is in their lives that would help us understand those lives from somewhere else, such as London. Were you looking for characters that you could use? Were you looking for... Or did you have kind of an idea of what you wanted to write before you went? Or um, did... Definitely not. And I've been in a, quite a number of situations where um, it's really important not to go in with any preconceived ideas. Mm. Um, your, your job is to listen, learn, um, interpret, um, try to find a way to create a dramatised sequence of events that eventually become a play. Yeah. So you're, you're thinking on many levels. You're thinking dialect, you know, a simple one. The dialect is uh, how do you speak if you're a 16 year old lad in Derry? You know, what's your accent? What's your vernacular? Um, what's your uh, banter with each other? You know, those yeah. kind of things. If you're the 25 year old who's more political, you've got a different language set. So you need to be looking at what's influenced people. Mm. If you're the 55 year old mother, who's got two sons who've gone over the border and joined the IRA, and she's looking at her third son, who now may follow those boys, and she runs the risk of losing mm. three sons. You're looking at a very different emotional setting for a character. So you're looking on all levels, everything, right even down to how this place looks and smells, and yeah, um, what's its history, what's its culture, what's its language, who are these people... And in the end, you know, to be honest, the, the most, the simplest way I can put it is they were, they were pretty much on all levels apart from accent, basically the kind of same community that I'd grown up in, which was a yeah, very working yeah. class, honest community that had gone through extraordinary pressures. Uh, and the community I grew up in didn't have to go through that same political pressure, but I'm damn sure a lot of people within it would have reacted the same way if they had. Um, so these were decent people, and you, you'd think they're just like my parents and my neighbours, yeah. where I've grown up with. Really. And there can be a tendency to think that that we are so different because we haven't had that experience. But you know, if that could have happened anywhere, we would have stayed. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely.
it's a community in crisis and they, they, there is an old saying about drama that drama is the art of crisis right yeah So, I want to move on slightly, if that's alright. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your writing process. Uh, does it does it differ depending on what project you're working on? Mm, definitely. Um, I'm I'm a very uh, I'm I'm a very structured writer. Um, I. I never start at the top of a page of A4 paper and work my way down. Uh, I always, right within reach of my desk, you know, there is always a, a massive stack of um, address cards. Right. You know, kind of five by threes and five by sevens and that kind of thing. Different colours, etc. And I will broadly um, lay out my ideas on dress cards and then then a new set of dress cards comes out of that one and another one and another one and, until you kind of layer in together the shape and structure of a piece um a lot of a lot of drama writing is uh, about what you leave out so you can go and do as much research as you like uh but it's really important to try to find a way to keep that research off the page um, yeah. make that research the thing that has informed the piece rather than the um, standing up and giving you a lecture so structure becomes incredibly important how do I reveal things to an audience how do I build tension how do I release tension um, how do I impact um, this audience with the unexpected um, how can I take them down a blind alley and then turn back and surprise them with the blaring headlights shining at them that they weren't expecting, that kind of thing. All of those things layer into slowly, slowly, slowly characters establishing their own voice in the piece. Mm. So pretty much all the writing that I do, and I've done a lot of a lot of television writing as well, um, television drama and film writing, um, pretty much all of it follows the same process. You know, I wrote 227 episodes of Brookside, which we can chat about as well. Yeah, time. I'd like to talk about that, yeah. In, in, a, in an episode of Brookie, there would be, you know, uh, 22 and a half minutes of drama, 14 characters, seven story strands, and <laughs> I would always beat that out in address cards before uh, I sat down to write a word of dialogue or a word of action. Because you need to kind of manage it, you need to be in control of it. Yeah. I think we've all read novels where the novelist has started off with a good idea. And after about 80 pages, you just think, mm, this idea is running out of steam. Mm. You can't do that with drama. You know, the audience is going to be there. They've been there for the first half. They've been there for the interval. They've had a GMT. They come back. Yeah. They sit. They want another 60 minutes of drama, and they want an ending, you know? But, they want something. But this is a strict... Is the structure not more regimental in film and TV than it is in theatre? Every, in a way, every one of them is different. Which, whichever story you're telling, I mean, I've got this strand might sound strangeness, but at the moment, I would I'm probably working on 15 to 16, 17 different projects. Wow. Now, not all of them are likely to happen. Um, <clears throat> some of them are film, television, streaming is more part of what we do now. 
Uh, one is animation, one is radio, um, quite a few are theatre, and the others are television pictures, really, and TV yeah. drama pictures. And uh, each one of them comes with a very, very different uh, internal process. Um, you know, it has to have its own logic, you have to create its own world. Um, but the techniques that you apply are the same. You're all the time, you're looking for um, what's the dramatic action of this? How does the story unfold? Who are the characters? Yeah. What are their experiences? Uh, in what world do they live? What world do they come from? What world do they want to go to? That they want to be in? What are the obstacles and barriers in their way? Uh, who are the people around them who personify those obstacles and barriers? How do you make this work in, in a, uh, a limited cast environment, like working in a small scale theatre mm. company where you might have two? three if you're looking, people in the cast. Or if you're working in a film, one of the film scripts I'm on the third third draft of, um, it's probably got 60 speaking characters in it, you know, which you wouldn't okay. get in a small touring theatre company. Yeah. Um, it will also then have about 120 characters who influence the action of the piece. Um, so Ooh. there is a different scale, a different yeah. management. Sometimes when you write community theatre, uh, I've written three very big, large-scale community plays where you, you end up with a, a three-year project working with a community. You write for the people and the area that you're working in. And yeah. you end up kind of creating a, a matrix of performance, really. You're trying to give people things to say, characters to be, groups of characters to exist, to represent different aspects of the storyline. But it means you might have 125 people on stage at one time. And they've all got to have something proper to do as part of delivering your story. But are you not losing something dramatically by the fact that you've, you've got to include these 125 people, for example? Do you... No, because the, the thing which is dramatic, the essence of that is the story itself. Mm. So one of the techniques that you apply if you work on a large-scale production like that for the stage is you write what are called baskets of characters. Okay. And so rather than just having one character who represents the, let's say, the vicar and, and a perspective which is coming from a, a Christian point of view or something like that, you'll create the vicar and you'll create a basket of characters around him which might be the Sunday... Um, chapel congregation or the church congregation or the choir um, <clears throat> or uh, in groups, a group rather that then act a little bit of the way Greek drama works is they act as kind of um, a, a combination of choruses in a way that represent the different individual voices in the piece. Okay, that, that was really interesting and what do you find the difference between working in terms of community theatre and professional theatre, what do you find are the differences? In community plays and community theatre, you have a lot more teaching to do, mm. where you, you have to build up people's confidence, build up people's uh, performance skills. Uh, ensemble skills, um, movement skills, vocal skills, all of those things. But you you would expect a professional company to come through the door and be 
absolutely from day one working at all those levels mm. at, at the right level. Um, so normally you need a much longer lead-in time with working on community plays and community drama. You need a you might have a three to four week rehearsal period with a professional group. Uh, of actors, but with community, you might need a 12 to 14 week. Um, mm. Partly because you can't have 125 people there all at one time. Not everybody's available all at one time. That's true. Yeah. So you work in small numbers. You work in twos and fives and threes and ones and etc. Um, you you then kind of build up a mosaic of performance where everybody's in, incrementally working and moving forward a little bit at each. Uh, each day at a time, whereas the professionals, you expect them to be there from day one. Really. Um, and you have a shared language with the professionals, which you have to introduce into the community drama standpoint. Yeah, yeah, and the element of it, but I suppose there are different elements of it. It's a completely different experience, really, and you will enjoy some parts of it more. Because I guess sometimes what's produced can feel a bit more organic, but then maybe a bit less polished than if it was performed by professional actors. I've never, I've never allowed any of the theatre projects I've worked on to be less polished, one less polished than another. To me, if I'm working <laughs> with a group of young people like I did um, here in January in Radar, I had a cast of 35. Yeah. To me, they all I, I set the bar at a certain height, mm. and they all have to get to that height. And to begin with, they're all anxious about that, nervous about it, and they don't think they will achieve it. But if you invest the, your time and your expertise and your skill into them, they will achieve it. And they have to take responsibility for it uh, mm. and do work, you know, home, homework. They have to go away and work on things. Um, but in the end people should watch a production like that and not in any way think it's a lesser product than a professional product. No, you're right. Absolutely right. In a way, one of the big differences is if you if you compare working in theatre and television, for example, right. creating drama for television or for theatre or for community theatre, um, creating drama for TV, it, you, you, are, you can be very remote from the product product as the writer um, <clears throat> for example again just touching on the Brookside thing I, I wanted to come to that next so if you well, yeah. maybe hook them together in a way because it, there's um, you know to, to make a programme like Brookside to be broadcast three times a week there would be 400 people working on that show right so that is everybody that is writers, actors directors technicians, camera people, um, gardeners, mechanics, yeah. you know, caterers, everybody right across the board. And you as the writer have to be very confident in what you put on the page that it's going to survive that process. And not every writer can do that or feels comfortable doing that. Mm. Um, it's not a nurturing environment. Um, Theatre is a much more nurturing environment for a writer. And for you working on Brookside, um, just going through my notes briefly, uh, was it was it a stressful experience, right, having to that kind of level of output? Uh, and did you feel 
restricted creatively at all? Two really good questions. Um, no, you. What you have is an extraordinary opportunity to put your drama and skills to to the test in front of eight to eleven million people a week, and you are you quickly become aware there's a huge level of responsibility comes with that that when you're telling stories that go into people's living rooms uh and and that people almost read this as real life you know because you're putting lives on screen which they are identifying with very closely yeah. so you have a big responsibility if you're doing a like a mental health story or um a rape story or a drug abuse story so you you're uh, your relationship to the audience is something which is fundamental and becomes really, really important to you. You are essentially changing people's lives, although at the time they don't necessarily know that. You're, you're in a position where you are influencing people's opinions and, and also enabling them to recognise themselves and their stories on screen. So even though I live in rural mid-Wales, I know many, many sheep farmers and hill farmers here who used to love watching Brookside because mm. number one it gave them a different way into what the world was like in cities but it also dealt with things that they felt that you know they felt things about they they knew somebody with a mental health problem or you know there was a family member who'd um, got into a substance misuse mm. alcohol misuse or something like that story and so you, you do have a very um uh you, you, have, you have an incredible power, an incredible voice, and you, you have to take that morally, you have to take that very seriously when you're working at, at that level. I, I helped to storyline two and a half thousand episodes of Brookside as part of the time that I was there over 18 years. Um, if if I, I then wrote 227 episodes as part of that, mm -hmm. if, if that was translated into the number of words that I wrote, uh, and I was a novelist, it would be the equivalent of me having 45 novels on the bookshelf. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, as, a, as a television drama writer, mm. you're not seen in that way. You are um, you're part of the team. Uh, you, your name does go on the end of the scripts and you're taking a collective cabinet collaborative mm. responsibility with the management for creating the storylines. Um, but your, your profile in it is very different. It's not like having your plays published or having your novels published. So, in terms of the, did I feel restricted um, uh, within that format? Not at all, because interestingly, Brookside was a writer's company. The, the founder of okay. it was Phil Redmond. He was a writer. Um, he, he, he gave us an enormous amount of responsibility as writers to, to push the envelope, you know, really break the boundaries of British drama on television. And, and we did, and we were really, really proud of that. We would be cited in the Houses of Parliament and quoted in Hansard. And, you know, currently a Brookside storyline dealing with such and such is an example of this, why, yeah. why we should change the law, you know. And so th those kind of things, you, you're not restricted uh, in that sort of setting. Um, you are expected to break the barriers and, and push things. Push the thing that restricts you is the format, which yeah. is the, it's, the episode is 22 and a half minutes. You're going to probably have seven characters, uh, seven storylines to, to get through. 
three major, four minor, and you're probably going to have 12 to 14 characters every episode. So how many minutes per storyline is that? That's... It kind of depends. You, your, your major storylines, you're not the major, the key storyline wouldn't be getting more than eight to nine minutes, and you'd have to really deliver Oof. big impact, powerful drama during that eight to nine yeah. minutes. And then there'd be a little patchwork of descending order of uh, importance for the story. Mm. Sometimes you're finishing something off that's just gone before. Sometimes you're setting up something that's coming next. Uh, all the time, you're not writing just for yourself. You're writing for the people writing before you and the people coming after you. Uh, and all the time, you're writing for the viewer. You're, you know, pe- pe- you probably noticed people talk to the television screen when they're watching drama. Yeah. Yeah, they they'll say things like, "Well, why, why are you going to do that for? Why are you doing that? Don't do that! Don't do that! Why is why is he going through that door?" You know, all the time you're kind of writing, knowing that people engage with television drama. Definitely. So a lot of the time you're trying to second guess them, or you're trying to fool them and take them down a, a, a bit of a blind alley that you can um, uh, you can then um, pull the rug from under their feet with. Yeah. It's interesting kind of correlation back to the theatre stuff which I after doing the Royal Court thing I was sent by the National Theatre to during the minor strike in 1984 and 1985 I was sent to live with a striking minor in the striking mining community in Kent to create a play which in some way represented that voice and I wrote a verbatim play on the back of that right that, it came out in three versions. It came out in a touring version and two versions at the National Theatre. Right the way throughout all my Brookside kind of writing, I was really conscious that my experience of living for nearly a year in a community in crisis gave me, um, on the back of the Northern Ireland stuff as well, it gave me such an insight into um, how, how uh, ordinary people are completely underrepresented in television normally at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're coming on the back of the 50s and the 60s there and the 70s where, you know, in the early days of television, people delivered the news and they were wearing pearls around their neck, you know, and, and evening gowns when they started delivering the news. And it took a very long time for ordinary people to find a voice in, in British television. But were there not kind of more kitchen sink dramas and social realism in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, there was... The theatre had kind of started that with (coughs) um, Look Back in Anger and and etc. But still on British television, you were at a period where the Wednesday play had come along and uh, Armchair Theatre had come along. Yeah. Um, But then when we moved into Ryan Brookie, I joined in 84, after I'd finished the minor strike stuff, um, 84, 85... Um, no, sorry, I joined in 86 after the minor strike 84, 85 and it had been running two or three years by then but I I then stayed with it for 18 years and I had to um, continually draw on all the experiences that I'd had in theatre mm. to keep giving a voice to characters um, and not all writers can find a place around the table they can join a company like that and they don't last. They either think it's not for no. them or the company thinks they're not right. Um, and I, I was very lucky. I struck up a very trusted relationship with the, the boss. Um, and he, he referred to me as the father of the chapel. Oh, well. It's, it's a combination of um, old-fashioned um, phrasing, which 
in trade union terms. It means you're the essentially the person who liaises between shop floor and management. Mm-hmm. So you're expected to be an honest broker between the two. But also the father of the chapel in in um, religious terms is that you're expected to be the wise arbiter, the the kind of old wise head who's been around and done stuff and seen stuff and you're not expected to fly off the handle for any odd reason making tv drama three times a week is an incredibly incredibly intense process yeah very very demanding i i wrote on christmas day at times um as part of my writing process for brookside because there were deadlines to hit Uh, on one occasion i had to do a major set of rewrites I wrote at the desk for 23 hours solid. All I did was get oh up, go to the goodness. toilet, come back to the desk. And that was to deliver stuff that was being shot the next morning at 9 o'clock. That's incredible. Just the pressure of that having... Yeah, especially the times, yeah, yeah. To get it right for broadcast the next... <laughs> I I can't imagine that because theatre comparatively is as much slower process you've just got to, and you've got to get it right the first time almost there's yeah. no time for the second or third draft really yeah no you have to be confident in your own skill set you have to work at it and craft it as well but you you have to have a level of um uh self-confidence mm. self-belief to be able to to work at that pace and at that level um uh, we come to the end but I'm going to ask you, there's things I've got here that I wanted to cover that we're not going to have time to mm-hmm. fit okay. in. But um, the process of running a writer's room. Mm. Uh, I'm in saying that it's writer's rooms came from America and that they are an American thing that have only been kind of recently introduced in Britain. It's a weird combination of, of origins. The, in the early days of filmmaking in America, there were essential, what are essentially writers' rooms, but they would be almost like a building which housed writers, and the producers would be going along from office to office to corridors saying, I need this, I need that, and it would kind of come organically mm. from different writers. But if you look at a series like Breaking Bad, um, Breaking Bad is a fine example of a very well-run writers' room. Um, where the writers would spend, with the producer, two weeks working on one episode in terms of beating up story, character, progressions, all those things. And going back to Brookside from the 80s onwards, when when I worked on it up until the end of 2003, Phil Redmond ran that room um, as an open space where we were all equal and valued. And we were expected to be challenging, expected to be provocative, expected to be great storytellers as a team. And uh, so in a way, the the Brookside experience in Britain was quite unique. It's never really been replicated. To some extent, it exists a little bit these days on on Coronation Street in a similar vein. Um, EastEnders pretended that it existed for quite a long time, but it never really did. There was always a kind of hierarchical influence um, from the BBC and the management producing management mm-hmm. so in terms of running a writer's room you you have to I, I love it I absolutely love it it's um uh, it's like a drug you know you go in yeah. two days a month 
and you, you call together <laughs> this disparate group of people with their different ideas yeah. and, and approaches to life and you find story is the thing that represents you all and you have to find your corner and um, as a as someone running in the writer's room you have to be a facilitator and an enabler as well as like a chairman of a rowdy you know committee kind of thing um, but in the yeah. end story is a thing that wins it, it's not like my story was better than yours or he's better than her um, it's the thing of like yes the story's now proved itself yeah um, and that's one of the reasons that that kind of format can be incredibly valuable and you learn as a writer you just learn an immense amount from other people in it as well trust and collaboration is key to mm. it um, sparking creativity creatively off each other is key to it um, it's a you know it's a unique and special place to be a writer's room and every everyone develops as well every I bet everyone's writing develops from being within that environment everyone yeah improves. absolutely yeah yeah and not everybody comes anywhere near at the same level experience you know I mean on Brookside yeah. we one day there's a new writer comes through the door and he's 19 years old and he's looking like he's rabbit in front of the headlights yeah. and then you know 10 years later he's still writing for the company but he's a very different writer yeah and another guy came through the door a scouser who'd been uh, a plumber on building sites and he'd started doing a workers educational association course in creative writing and the the guy running it said you should be doing this for a living not plumbing let me put you into a yeah. television and phil yeah. redmond met him and said come and join us and he could not believe that he'd gone from being a, a plumber yeah. on a building site to being a writer around the table but he took a lot of mentoring you know the, the basically the boss said to him sit next to peter and peter will kind of whisper in your ear when there's really things going on that you don't understand um there's a lot of politics in that kind of room there's a lot of difficulties things to do with actors contracts and what the channel wants and all kinds of things it's never as simple as just writing the story particular characters having to have this amount of screen time and things like that um, yeah, and time off and holidays, and yeah. someone's having a baby, someone's got an illness, and different things. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a great example of how the program is very groundbreaking, was we were the first um, male uh, gay kiss on British television in a drama, and we were the first yeah. lesbian kiss on British television. And so Stephen Parry is a very, very well-known actor in, in uh, Wales. Stephen was... In the program, and he was involved in that first set of scene. Anna Friel, who went on to become a very yeah. famous international film. But all the time you do it, you kind of know that you're you're breaking the bounds of possibility with the drama that you're writing, and you're doing it in people's living rooms, which is amazing. Yes, oh, it's been fascinating to hear more about, about the process and how it works. The final thing before we finish. Oh, Talking about people's living rooms. Yes. Rooms. We spent an awful lot of time in our living room. We have. For the past three or four months. We have. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you is what. <laughs> so the important thing to keep is. Sorry. I just lost you there. So the last thing I want to ask you is 
What what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone like me starting out as a writer in the industry today? Sort of advice, you mean? Yeah. I think if you were, I wouldn't, I wouldn't only think of it as a writing or a theatre making career. I would put yourself in the frame of mind of if you're going to learn um, a craft which produces something extraordinary at the end of it, mm. you need to learn all aspects of it. So if you're going to create a Welsh dresser, you don't just think, oh, I'll go to B&Q and buy a bit of shelving and nail it together. You think, actually, I've got to learn the craft of making a Welsh dresser. I've got to find out about different wood. I've got to find out why you use oak. What can it do for you? How you French polish? How do you make joints? How do you cut wood? How do you design? You kind of you put together the whole concept of it. In a way, if you're writing good drama for the stage, it's not just about the words. It's not just about the characters. It's about all the aspects of creating a theatre experience for your audience. And so the more you can watch, the better. You know, go and get a job as yeah. an usher and, and just see the second half of mm. shows if you can't <laughs> see the whole show. Yeah. Most of the time, you'll see the whole show. But you see it ten times, and then you'll see an audience make it a different show every night. Um, if you can work as an assistant on things, work as an assistant. If you can be, um, find, you know, knock on the door, be, um, be the person who kind of comes with enthusiasm and an open heart and an open mind. And don't expect to be a master of your craft within the first year, within the first five years. Okay. Within, within my career, once I knew that I wanted to write, I gave myself five years to see if this was what I really wanted to do right. and eight years to see if I could make a living at it. And I was just about making a living after about seven years. And I've wow. done it ever since and I've been around a long time. There are some times that I've had phenomenally lean years with very, very little income. Okay. Um, and uh, to be honest, I don't care as long as I've paid the bills by one way or another. Yeah because it's an it's a unique privilege to be able to do it um and it's a an extraordinary uh, opportunity that you have to create with other people to work in a team thank you peter it's been fantastic talking to you thank you for your time I'm... great it's a pleasure uh, and i will catch you next episode of in lockdown with where my guest is Chloe Clark, the co-founder of Elbow Room Theatre. So I'll see you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.